It's a brand new year. It is. 2016. What has it got to offer yet? <laughs> what have we had so far? And just like we had a State of the Union address, we've had things going on in Iran, we've had various <sighs> Trump gasms all over the place. What other horrible, wretched thing has happened? Oh, that's right. Oh, we had a huge loss. I'm pouring a beer right now for Bowie. I'm I wouldn't sh- do that. That's the couch. Yeah, it's okay. The cats will lick it up. Oh, it's Bowie. It's fucking Bowie. Well, it's uh, Bowie. I mean, can we even talk about anything else? I mean, you know, we could just talk for about an hour on just how awesome David Bowie was. Yeah. You know? I don't know. You know, I mean, yeah, we probably should do the show. There's actually, you know, there's actually some good films this, is a this good week. Slate. Yes, I mean, but uh, you know what? I really do think you know what. We definitely need... Uh, what we need to power through it. We do with... Beer. David Bowie would have sung that so much better. Well, I think anybody would. Anybody would have. to a sad, mournful, but actually really good episode of Digital Noise. Agreed. I'm Richard. I'm Marco. And uh, this is so weird. This is, uh, like, hang on to your hats, folks. This is a week where everything was at least good. Yeah, when your weakest film is still pretty good. Yeah, when your weakest film is actually like, you know what, I'd I'd recommend this to a friend. It's like, this never, ever happens. Not one of these movies made me consider ending my life. Not one. Which is... Rare. It's rare. Actually, I'm unpre- I'm, I, I'm looking at Chris, and he's giving me the totally unprecedented face. Mm. So, yeah. I, I'm still relatively new to the site, so I didn't think this ever happened. It doesn't. I, I didn't realize <laughs> really did. how rare. There's, there's always... And, this, and the fun thing is that this is February, which in cinematic release terms is the dog month. There's a couple well, of things which sneak through, but there's some real... You know, the stuff that... We actually saw as critics back in December that's sneaking out now, stuff like The Revenant, uh, some later markets getting hateful late, things like that. We think of those as last year's films, but wow, there's some some shonk coming out, as, uh, as they put it. But one of the best things is we're actually getting uh, a whole bunch of films that were you know part of the serious consideration for... The award season, yeah. and are coming in with some award buzz, and they're, they're, you know, the studios are putting them out now. So actually, if the stuff you missed last year that you're like, is it worth catching? It's like, yeah, mm. yeah. And one of those, the first, because we have to start off with the reviews. Thank you. Um, start off with, with one of the ones that is coming in with a lot of talk uh, about a, a you know, at least... Uh, a best supporting ask- uh, actor contender, uh, probably a best actress contender, is mm-hmm. Sicario. Oh, and, and definitely cinematography. Deacons will definitely be up for this because it's a gorgeous. Film oh, this to look is at. this is this is beautiful. This is uh, directed by Dennis Villeneuve. Um, the the broad outline of the story is that Emily Blunt uh, plays a uh, a young uh, youngish, but you know, a little bit 
beaten down on the road uh, uh, law enforcement officer. Yeah, works on the kidnap response team. Yeah, Delia, you know, and suddenly it breaks, you know, they, they do a raid on a house and discover that not only is the uh, the victim that we're looking there for not there, but the entire building is stuffed in the walls with bodies. It's, it's a really grisly moment. It, it's almost like something out of a serial killer movie. And that opening sequence... I think does a great job of kind of setting the tone for the rest of this movie, which is, you know, it was one of those films that I actually uh, found myself getting tensed up during the moments where nothing happened. Yeah. It had these great lulls punctuated by bursts of horrific violence and very well staged. And uh, I mean, the, the honestly, opening scene is, is almost like if you watched um, the house raid from Silas the Lambs mm-hmm. from the viewpoint of the police. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of a lot of Silas the Lambs nods that Villeneuve, you know, quite sensibly makes uh, that work extremely well and don't feel like homages or rip-offs. No. Uh, but, you know, she suddenly realizes there's something bigger going on that clearly the this isn't just some random kidnappings, that the cartels are involved. Yes. And she gets... Uh, Part of what happens is that, you know, she's obviously, you know, proven herself very effective. And even though this technically is not her field, she's not in narcotics, she doesn't deal with gang-related activity directly. However, she is pulled in by her superior officer to work with a shadowy group of operatives who may or may not be CIA. We don't quite know for a while. Uh, but she is basically asked to volunteer for this very small clandestine group that's going to penetrate the Mexican cartels directly and and take the war to them, if you will. Now, it sounds like a good setup for, you know, what you might expect of like a good action thriller, and it has those elements, but this is actually something that's a little more probing, I think a little deeper, and uh, ultimately a lot more uh, condemning of our current activities across the border. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things about this, because you know, the team that she's put with is headed up by Josh Brolin yes. as an extremely perky guy with, an a- with access to a lot of guns, yes. a lot of material. And she's, she's initially going, yeah. why am I here? What is it you need me for? Because if he is CIA, then clearly there's a reason that he needs you know, basically an extremely experienced um, SWAT team chief, effectively. Yeah. Um, and Mind you, he right- shows up in sandals and shorts to yeah. a meeting, and this is the most powerful guy in the room, which the, makes and, you wonder. But he's the second scariest man in the room, because you know he's scary, you know he yes. can handle himself in a firefight, and he can call on special forces, and there's just this cadre. And that's one of the nice things that, that's done here, is that Blunt is, is regarded as an outsider, and is treated as an outsider, and they're using her for a reason, which becomes clearer as the film goes on. Yeah. And the special forces guys are basically just go, don't get us killed. Yeah. Don't get us killed. Stay out of the way. They're not even like, don't get yourself killed. It's like, don't get us killed. That's all we care about. Because they're fighting a very different war. Yeah. And they really do not need her. No. They do not need her apart from a technicality that will be explained uh, as the film progresses. What you have is a character who is sort of thrown into this sort of, you know, basically she winds up in this horrible wonderland, for lack of other words. She goes through the mirror. And things in this part of the world do not work by procedure. There, the rule of law is disregarded. There's a lot of moral and ethical quandaries that she has to you know, contend with while she thinks she's doing the right thing by pr- 
participating with this group, as we find out, they have their own agenda. And, and the, uh, the agenda is personified uh, uh, yes. by Benicio del Toro as he's initially just this guy who hangs around in the background glowering. Yeah. It seems nice enough, but as, as things go on, you realize this is the most frightening man in a movie filled with people for whom other people aren't just disposable. They're marionettes to be manipulated and tortured as much as possible. And what this film presents is a very real, in many ways, examination of how extreme and extraordinary the situation with the cartels has got. And it never says that the bad, illicit, arguably illegal things that are being done are the ro- by the, the U.S. government in these circumstances are the wrong thing. They basically, they, they're almost presented as, well, what are you prepared to do? And how far is Emily Blunt's character prepared to go? And you, the, you kind of, you, much of the drama comes from going, well, how far has Benicio Del Toro's character right. gone? Is he a good guy in a bad circumstance? Is he a good guy prepared to do bad things? Or is he the devil? And, you know, that's why I think... In a very quiet role, oh, yeah. <laughs> Del Toro is getting such good word for this performance because you go, I don't even, you know, I understand this guy, but I don't know him. Right. And he's the, a mystery. The first time he's introduced to us is just on a plane, taking a nap, and we see him wake, you know, in a startled moment, he wakes up from what clearly must be a horrific dream. And that's all we really need to know that this character has seen witnessed, encountered, participated in some truly horrible, horrible things. Yet, you kind of touched on this, the question of morality and whether it's right or wrong. I don't think anyone in this movie thinks they're doing the wrong thing, which makes it a really interesting dynamic. Uh, When you have a character like the Emily Blunt character, who feels like, hey, you know, there are rules, there are procedures, this is what I signed up for, Uh, not what you guys are doing, but for upholding the law, protecting the citizenry, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. None of these guys, you know, all of the characters have already made that leap, and she hasn't yet. This is this is gang war as, as realpolitik. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, and it's it. really fascinatingly put together. This is a, a film which has a moral compass, but it's a, you know, it does say maybe sometimes you, you know, the, the old argument that if you fight with monsters, you shall become a monster. Because, well, you know, considering the monsters you're dealing with, is that necessarily a bad thing? Yeah. Or is that just a, a survival? And there is a, a final line delivered by one of the characters that just is so perfect. Mm-hmm. Because while, yes, this is a film that's saying, you know, the American drug war has done terrible things to the American political psyche, it also has a character who's prepared to say, well... It, you either ha- do this or you turn away from the the reality of what's happening over your border. And there's a, you know, and it, it doesn't portray everybody involved in the cartels as cartoon villains. There's a wonderful there's a wonderful subplot involving yes, yeah. a Mexican police officer who you you kind of develop a degree of sympathy for. Right. And you have no idea what his connection to the plot is. Yeah. But the final it does ultimately lead up to, I think and again, I can't talk about it too much because this is a movie not worth spoiling. Uh, but suffice it to say that on both sides of the border, there are victims of this. 
their consequences and casualties all along the way. Uh, I, I kind of thought it would be closer to like a movie like Traffic. I mean, maybe that's an obvious parallel, but you know, it, it does that thing where it takes a story with some very extreme characters, some of whom are unlikable, but you kind of see the world through their lens, and it's not a very pretty sight. No. Except for the cinematography by Roger Deakins, which every shot in this movie looks fantastic. Uh, and he really gives us some wonderful, dark, moody scenes. This and is one it's of those worth films, watching on Blu-ray. Yeah, this is one of these films that, where you... It, Deakins, I blow very hot and cold on. I think there's some stuff he's done which is very overrated. Sure. This is one of the ones where you go, this is why this guy is regarded as one of the best cinematographers around and one of the most in-demand ones. This is a, a great film. Yeah. Great bundle of extras on here. Um You've got a, a battle zone, which is explaining the mm-hmm. political origins and the reality of what's happening on the border with the cartels. Uh, uh, a pulse from the desert, which is the, making about the, the score of Sicario. Uh, stepping into the darkness, which is about you know developing the visual style of it. Uh, and a featurette with uh, Blunt, uh, Brolin, and uh, Del Toro just discussing their performances. This is a great film. Yeah, and you know, a it's, solid it's, DVD release. You know, it's... I think in a year where there's flashier films, mm-hmm. I think the, this will go down. This will be remembered extremely well. Yeah, nothing bad to say about this. No, nope. which is great. You should, um, you, why are you even listening? <clears throat> you should go watch this movie. Yeah, now. go watch but this. But wait movie. until we talk about the other ones. Yeah, because there's, there's good ones. Yeah, and, the, and another film that's kind of you know, I think just fell between a lot of stools this year, and I think we'll be looked upon much more favorably ah, in yeah. years to come is yeah if you have vertigo <laughs> um please clamp yourself in for the next two titles we're going to talk about um because we, we're starting with the walk yes now i keep for a few days after watching this whenever i talked about it with anyone i constantly kept referring it to it as man on a wire which is a great documentary that i think came out in about 2012 or so uh but if you've seen that documentary, this is the dramatization of that. I'm sure the documentary is what brought it to Hollywood's attention. Uh, it's this true story of Philippe Petit, uh, who was a French uh, mime, wire walker, performance artist, juggler, you name it. His life's ambition was to walk on a tightrope between the Twin Towers before uh, it opened. Yeah, and th- this is one of the things that, you know, th- th- this is before <coughs> it becomes an iconic building. Mm-hmm. Before, and, and while New Yorkers were generally going, that's really yeah. ugly. And when it's finished, it's going to be even uglier. Okay. It's the uh, first and only just movie. Sees really a, loves it. Yeah, he sees an article about it uh, in a copy of Le Monde and just goes, I want to walk between those buildings. Yeah. And it becomes this obsession and he does everything he can to get to New York, get conspirators. <laughs> and, and, okay, let me backtrack a little bit, because having seen the documentary, I thought, okay, there's really no surprises in store for me. Spoiler alert, kids, he walks across the Twin Towers. That's why it's considered an inspirational tale. If he died, it would be a cautionary tale. Now, the real pleasure of this movie to me is in the details as to how it was done. Now, I this was the one movie that when I started watching it, I started to think I'm not going to like this. Uh, Bob Zemeckis is a very hit and miss director for me. I think he's really good with visual effects. Uh, he can be cloying as hell. And he can be cloying and very sentimental. There's elements of that in this Long-winded film. Long-winded as well. Yeah. Castaway is, is a good half an hour longer than any film can justify it. Absolutely. But this movie starts off in black and white. Actually, it starts off with... Uh, 
uh, uh, the actor, uh, uh, why am I Joseph, Gordon Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who continues to prove himself to be one of our most engaging leading sporting, men. Sporting a terrible, Not, but, but period-specific haircut. And, and I was thought you were going to say a terrible French accent. I didn't think it was terrible, but it was, it was distracting because I just couldn't <laughs> believe it coming out of his mouth. But it's required of him. He does it. He does a lot of the physical work required to make the character of Petit believable. But it starts off in black and white, and I think, okay, it's a flashback. It's in the early 70s. I'm like, all right, black and white, 70s, okay. At some point, you see the character walking by, and you notice things like, oh, the uh, the checkered tablecloths on all the Parisian cafes are, are red. Okay, the, the cops chasing him are in blue. I'm like, all right, we're going to have these kind of little visual effects. All right. Then we cut to Joseph Gordon-Levitt standing on the top of the Empire, not Empire State Building, uh, the uh, Statue, Statue of Liberty. Liberty, and then pulls out like a little ball of, you know, which is a globe, and then he spins it around. It's all very CG, and I'm just thinking, God, I'm not going to like this movie. It's already so gimmicky. Then we cut to another flashback, and that flashback is in color. I'm like, okay, this is just incoherent now. But I forgave everything once we move into the second, the middle of the movie, where it becomes a heist film. All of the cheesy, cloying stuff at the beginning. And a very 70s heist film as well. And a very 70s heist film. Zemeckis has made a great period piece, not just in the set dressing, but in his approach to actually telling the story. And I think that's one of the big successes here, is you feel like this could have... if, If a 70s director had been given the tools... That we have now, they would have made this film. Well, he he would have made the middle half. Yeah. Then when we get so the first half is gimmicky, the middle half feels like a seventies heist film, and the latter half, the last third of the movie, when we actually get to the wire walking, uh, is something that could only be accomplished today using CGI, and it's almost flawless. There are moments where I see some seams here and there, but my goodness. I, I don't have the biggest TV in the world. It's a good-sized TV. I didn't see this at the theater on IMAX and 3D, but even on my small screen at home, I had my fist balled up, and I could <laughs> feel my palms sweating. So, yeah, if you don't like heights, this not, is, this may not be the movie for you. the film for you. Because once all. they get on that wire, and that really, the about the last third of the movie is kind of him on this wire. Uh, and it's it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt delivering externally delivering an internal monologue yes. from Petit and his his conspirators and the fact that he does constantly refer to them as conspirators. I mean, uh-huh. it takes a couple of uh, you know moments of artistic and narrative sure. license. Uh, it ignores the fact that he'd already done one big walk. I think it was. Um, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. He'd already done one major walk. Well, they do show him walking across uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral. Yeah, there was another one uh, before know, that as they well. They might not have... Uh, yeah, they had to the, compress it. But, and, and I feel like all the conspirators were either composites or exaggerated to make them more relatable. Uh, I'd have to go back and watch the documentary again. But Levitt comes across as a... He makes Petit a likable obsessive. Yes. This guy is an artist with a particular canvas. And... It works, and it does feel inspirational, because this guy with this one skill, with this complete degree of insanity, who goes through this process that it just even getting to the wire should have killed him multiple times. Oh, yeah. But, you know, they 
this is kind of like a more charming version of Ocean's Eleven in some ways, in a middle sequence. I, I almost suspect that, I rather suspect that the real Petit has a lot rougher edges to him, was probably a lot harder to work with, but they make Levitt so damn charming in this movie, so that when he finally does, kind of, some of the cracks start to appear as he starts to have doubts, he starts to become, <laughs> that obsession becomes a bit tyrannical. To me, that was where the movie starts to get a little interesting, but then they pull back and we get to this jovial dreamer uh, basically climbing his Everest. Um, that's not really intentionally a, <laughs> the next one, but but again, it it's kind of that same thing where where most people just saw a building, he saw a challenge, yeah, something that needed to be scaled, and you know, you could argue whether or not it's a good dream to have. Uh, I understand that phobias are irrational, but frankly, looking down the top of the Twin Towers to the pavement below, that's a perfectly rational fear in my book. I, one of the really great things that I don't think has been talked about enough with this is Levitt's physical <coughs> performance. Yes, he, he, he did his nails it. He absolutely. absolutely nails it. And there's a, a various sequences on, on both lower wires and higher... And, and, and he trained with Petit. Line. Oh, yeah. He did. Yeah. For, think, well, I, they said know, he trained for eight days, so take make of that what you will. Uh, but, but he's he committed. The, but he gets the moves down. And, and he and also has is, to do... Levin most has of a physical theater background anyway, so... Absolutely. He was probably more adept at this. But this is a... a, a it's an Oscar bait performance, but it's charming. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to do whole scenes in French. I'm going to contort my body in all these ways. I'm going to learn how to juggle. I'm going to learn how to wire walk, even though, I mean, really, he probably would have landed five feet and hit a green screen. But nevertheless, you do feel like he's hey, on you, that you wire. Fall, you fall five feet, you can blow your knees out pretty badly. Sure. And he this commits is... to the performance all the way. He's one of the best parts of this movie, and I really don't remember much of the other characters other than them having one or two key traits. It's really his movie, and he carries it from beginning to end. Yeah. Um... Good on the extras again. There's mm -hmm. a, a document, a short documentary, about ten minutes about uh, Levitt learning to work with Philip Petit and learning to wire walk and the appeal of wire walking. I wanted to see a more a behind the scenes of how they did the CG work because I think this. There's, is yeah, a, there's, again, there's like a ten minute, a one yeah. ten minute um, making of which called the Amazing Walk. Um, handful of deleted scenes, which I really don't feel anything. Um, I didn't bother with added those. Mu added much. I think there's, you know, Zemeckis, like, like we said earlier, can sometimes not know when to say when. And I think this is much more effective. Yeah. And the um, the best part of the supporting cast is the actress who plays Annie, who's the yeah. um, <clears throat> presented as kind of a, a love interest, but never really, you know, she... Um, uh, what, uh, is she could be a Charlotte, Charlotte Le Bon. Yeah. Um, and she is both a love interest and a foil. Yeah. And she serves that role particularly well. And their, their introduction is rather wonderful. As, yes, as, that was uh, good. Rival buskers, effectively. Um, and having known people who've busked and how vitriolic it can get between them. Oh, like, yeah. You're on my pitch. They're territorial. Yeah, that, the, that's actually one of the most charming bits of the film and I think does a lot to yeah. humanize Petit. Yeah, this is... Like, a lot of fun with the conspirators, a bunch of character actors just playing... One in particular who, of course, of course, one of the conspirators will have a crippling fear of heights. And I, if you don't think that's going to somehow be relevant later on, you've never seen a movie. But it's handled so well. In fact, 
My favorite sequence probably in this movie is not when they're walking on the wire. It's not in when they're in France re- rehearsing the break-in. It's when they're just waiting for a security guard to leave and they're sitting on, over a chasm. And the whole scene is pretty much just a medium shot of these two guys underneath a tarp. Yeah. But the tension is palpable. It's a really good nail-biting uh, kind of sequence, So especially if you have a perfectly rational fear of heights <laughs> speaking of speaking of this, is, this really is the vertigo week uh because yeah. now we're moving on to at least petit you know was in an urban environment you know he was if he fell he was dead uh but at least he got to sleep somewhere nice at night uh not true uh for the cast of everest yeah well we should point out that Petit's actions were completely illegal. Oh, massively. He has Horribly. to break into this place. And he has to... This is where the heist element comes in, is how do I stretch a heavy steel cable safely across these two? And I won't give <laughs> away... Safely. Safely. Yeah, well, safety ends up being a huge factor in this, you know, because he it's calculated to a certain degree. The difference between that movie and, say, this movie... And I think this is the most interesting part of this movie is the notion that you can take Everest and the the old line, of course, turns up. Why'd you climb Everest? Because it's there. You can, for the right amount of money, you can buy a ticket. You can go to Everest and you can have Sherpas and train guides escort you up. That doesn't make it easy. Or safe. Or safe. There's One of the most important lines is when they're they're saying, okay... We get past a certain point on Everest, your body is dying. Yeah. That is just dying. what happens up there. You are not supposed to be at this altitude. It's not even you know, it's not that the mountain is trying to kill you. It's you shouldn't be there. You really should not. And to me the key line in this movie, and I don't think to me this movie was good, it's good. But to me it's somewhat problematic in that I don't know. I think it's very reverent to the memories of, well, again, we're at the risk of spoiling it. Some people will die on this journey. Well, this is, this is based on and the, based the on a true, true story. story of the, uh, um, the 1996 climbing yeah. season uh, on Everest. And there is a very, very short window of opportunity for getting up Everest right. because you get past a certain point. Um, you're in winter. You get past, you go, you're too far the other way. Um, yeah. It's, just, it's not climbable because the crevasses are too big. Yeah. You know, you're in quote-unquote summer. So there's a yeah. very, very narrow window of opportunity. And, and if you get it even slightly wrong, you will die. And if there's a storm front coming, minutes count. And one of the, the interesting things about this, this story uh, is that there's not just one team. It's not one group. There are multiple teams. You have extreme tourists, you know, or hobbyists enthusiasts, however you want to refer to these people who pay enormous amounts of money to go up this mountain. It has become a, it's become an enterprise. And to me, that was the interesting part. When we find out that there's multiple teams, they're all vying for resources, they're vying for time, you realize part of what happens is that these guys aren't coordinating necessarily. They're not, at one point, you have multiple teams show up at the same site all intending to cross the same day to get over this rickety ladder uh, to cross a crevasse, and they have to wait in line because they didn't schedule this. It's like, oh, well, now we all have to go, and we can only go one at a time. 
One character who almost bites it when uh, when they help him up, he's furious. Uh, and to me, one of the key lines in the movie is where he says, I didn't pay you $65,000 so I could wait in line like some schmuck at Walmart. Yeah. And to me, I'm like, oh, this is going to be about how they've taken this natural wonder and capitalized it. It turned it into this sort of money maker and how the that of course turns out to be horrible they don't really do that they touch on it yeah and because in a movie where a lot of the key characters uh don't make it there has to be a certain amount of speculation on the part of the filmmakers as to what exactly happened uh but you do see certain things that have been corroborated like safety lines not being installed where they were supposed to Oxygen canisters that weren't placed in strategic points or were not full when they were dropped off. And you start to see this this confluence of events lead to disaster. Uh, and it starts off early enough when you realize that you have these two rival teams with different personalities, different methods. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, interplay between uh, the Jake Gyllenhaal character and yeah, the, Scott, uh, Scott Fisher, who was uh, you know the the, the basic yeah, tension yeah, there sure. is between uh, Jake Gyllenhaal as Scott Fisher, who was kind of the laid back hippieish guy yeah. who was like, yeah, we'll get up there, just still good at what he does, yeah. and then Jason Clark, who plays Rob Hall, uh, who uh, was a New Zealander who who mm-hmm. led a different expedition team, yeah. um, but he's uh, he's the one who's slightly more. The commercial end that right. uh, you know, one of the there's a, an exchange early on between Hall and Fisher where Fish, Fisher says, "Look, if you couldn't do this by yourself, yeah. I don't think you should be on this mountain right. in the first place." So there is this this question of like, well, who's doing the wrong thing? Mm-hmm. Who's setting people up to fail? And this is a huge ensemble cast. I mean, oh, we yeah, have, enormous you know, with people playing real characters yeah. and real humans. I mean, uh, you know, all doing it very well, yeah. I might add. Uh, you know, Hall was a real guy. Fisher was a real guy. Josh Brolin, back again, yeah. uh, as Beck Weathers, who was a um, a doctor who was basically his marriage was pretty much in, in peril because he wanted to climb the seven tallest mountains in the world, and you know, Everest is the last one. Um, John Hawkes as uh, Doug yeah. Hansen. and he was really such a great character too because you he's the one guy who. All of these guys, you get a sense, are sort of professional explorer, mountaineer types, or they're rich professionals who have the money to drop on this huge, you know, vacation package. This is a guy who we find out he's a mailman. He's got two other jobs. The kid, you know, his kids go to a school, and the school have done like some fundraisers yeah. to help him out. And his reason for and doing he gets it, a discount. Yeah, his reason for doing, and the reason he gets a discount is because he's done it twice before and not made it. Yeah, but this is a guy. The reason that he does it is obviously he wants to do it, but he also, you know, this, he has this great line where he says, you know, if a bunch of kids at my school can see a mailman can climb Everest, what you know. It'll inspire them to do something that people tell them is impossible. Yeah, and that's that's a really beautiful moment. And then you know people start dropping like flies. Now, what's wonderful about this is there's not a moment where it's like, oh, you know, somebody suddenly plummets to their death because a rope wasn't tied right. properly, or you know, there's an avalanche or something like that. Something happens that's big and dramatic. Yeah. These are people dying because nature is killing them. Yeah of cold and exposure and lack of oxygen oxygen and everything just, and things just stop, stop working. And that's, what's really surprisingly effective about this film is that it, you know, it, it is spectacular. 
I mean, there's no two ways around it. Uh, Balthazar Comico, the the director, uh, really gives you the sense of scale and spectacle. And they shoot in really a lot of the real locations. Oh, yeah. And there, but you, he doesn't need to because it looks so incredible, and you actually do like the characters and you feel sympathy and empathy yeah. for them. Even if you're going, you probably shouldn't be there in the first place because this place is going to fucking kill you. Um, that their deaths aren't set pieces. No, they are sad, intimate times. There's a and that's a real to it. achievement. That's I was really surprised by how well it pulled that off. My only problem with it, and again, I really like this movie, but my only problem with it was that it, it because you kind of know the and this movie has been made into doc. There's been documentaries about this. There have been endless articles about it. It's not a excuse me. It's not a. It's not a. I'm I'm catching a cold just talking about how chilly it is up there. Uh, It's not a suspense film. It's not trying to kind of gin up, you know, tension just to entertain a bunch of people who bought popcorn and wanted to sit in an IMAX screen. But it seems to be, to my mind, I left. I don't think I got what the filmmakers wanted out of this. I think they wanted me to walk away being deeply reverential and inspired for the people who were lost and feeling inspired. Actually, I walked away going, this is this is such hubris. Yeah. We shouldn't be up there. What's the point of being up there? These guys killed themselves for nothing, just for bragging rights to say they were part of this very small club. At well, some point, when, I, I get it. I think that, I but, think that, that actually came across uh, well because there are a lot of moments where people realize that they cannot rescue the people that are, yeah. are up there. And that you know, one of the constant complaints about people who, who go up places like Everest and the Matterhorn is that you, you walk past dead bodies on the way up and yeah. the way down. And they go, well, you know, there's a degree of inhumanity there. And he, and it's it's more, yeah. you think they're dead. And if you try and save, if you try and get that corpse, you will die. And the person that you're trying to help will die. Absolutely. And I think it, it actually does a very good job of humanizing that experience. And these people do walk away carrying those physical and physical, emotional and mental scars of knowing that they left people they liked and loved and worked with and worked around and respected. But, you know, if you're, if you're going to do this, that's part of the deal. And that's the tragedy of it. You know, and they're basically throwing themselves at the upper limits of, of the world. And, you know, yes, there are a lot of issues about, about whether they should be doing this and the film probably could have done more to examine that. But I think it does more to, it's it's aim for me was to explore when you're in that situation, why do you do the things you do? You see, and at one point there's two characters, and uh, I mean, again, you could Google this and get a list of everybody who was up there. So there's not much to spoil, but for the sake of someone who's coming into this story and uh, experiencing it the first time through this movie, uh, I'll be vague. But there's a moment where uh, a character. Uh, Kind of what you said, you know, at some point you have to leave someone behind. But at some point, one character makes a decision to help another character. At a point where that character should have just gone back. Where they told him, look, you're done. Go back. 
but he stubbornly refuses, and this guy, in a moment of kindness, agrees to help him finish a task. And that kind of sets off a chain reaction, and you realize, by being such a swell guy, you killed yourself, and probably killed others in the process. Uh, and again, for me, the moral tone of this film is somewhat incoherent. Not, not, not incoherent, but it's mixed. I feel like I'm supposed to feel reverence for all of these people and respect them for this journey that they took, knowing full well what the risks were. But I also feel like the movie's kind of trying to indict them for doing something so foolhardy in the first place. Uh, I'm not sure what, what it's trying to make me feel. Uh, and also, I'm a, it comes to mind that, you know, just like a year or two ago, there was a bit of a scandal on Everest because some Sherpas died. Yeah. And when you think about it, it's like, yeah, you've got some doctor who paid, you know, $65,000 to show up there. But the Sherpas, who are probably, you know, I'm sure they're making money, probably good money for Nepal. But, you know, those are the guys who are up there before you. They're the advanced team. And it's like, yeah, climb Everest. Yeah, we, we do that every other week. That's our job. You know, we go up there and we put the safety ropes and we put the harnesses and we leave the tanks or, and we or do in, the rest. In a couple of instances, don't or don't. Uh, which in this of, case, but that's the thing. I don't, I, like the, the, they don't the explore things, those. Yeah, too they much. don't build up. They, they they do build up that there's not. It's one thing goes wrong. It's a series of things that are so small that one in isolation would not right. be deadly on the level that this yeah. was. Where, uh, but. Everything comes together in just this this horrible conflict. I mean, it literally is a perfect storm, and there is a storm. That is really what precipitates everything that goes wrong. All, like you said, all of those things that happen, whether they were avoidable or not, they could have compensated for it. But once the storm hits, you know, you, you really don't. start. Yeah, it's like there's you too don't. many there's too many straws have already broken that camel's back. And, and even if they hadn't, you know, if you're at the, if you're at the top, if you're above a certain level, if you're above Hillary's step. You're done. Yeah, you are. You are not coming down. For that. Interestingly enough, this movie did not give me vertigo or make me clench up the way The Walk did. Well, I think that's because at least people's feet are on the ground. Uh, again, there you go. Yeah. Very loaded disc. Um, yeah, it's actually a triple disc. So if you've got a uh, a, a 3D Blu-ray player, um, then it will give you serious Probably, vertigo. Yeah. I try. I played with this. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. Um, bunch of exclu- of um, extras on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Learn to Climb, The Actor's Journey, which is basically just your standard making of. Um, uh, Amount of Work, Recreating Everest, which is basically effects work, and also talking about being on location. Um, Race to the Summit, The Making of Everest, which is actually a really good little documentary yeah. about uh, you know, how you put the entire film together, aspiring to authenticity, which they talk to a lot of um, survivors and surviving family members about what this meant, including uh, the daughter yeah. Um, of one of the characters who, you know, and that's really, really fascinating because she's going, well, this is my point of connection with my father. Yeah. The, these stories are all I have of him. And that's really super fascinating. Plus a, a director's commentary, which I didn't get a chance to listen to, but, no, um, I didn't either. Codicor hopefully goes a little bit more into some of his, uh, his, his, uh, yeah. the, the moral quandaries of the story. Yeah. yeah. Speaking, my hit aside, this is a good movie. Yeah, I yeah. don't want anyone to think I dislike it. It was just my my only time to explore this film. Maybe upon uh, examining the special features, I might have a uh, I might be able to reevaluate my assessment. Speaking of moral quandaries, 
Mm. The Milgram experiment, the famous oh. Milgram experiment. Now, if, if yes. you've never heard of this, this was a an experiment undertaken by a guy called Stanley Milgram um, in, in 1961. Mm-hmm. And it's a very simple idea. Two people walk into a room. One of them is defined as the student. One of them is defined as the teacher. The student is put into a room and has electrodes attached to them. The teacher asks them a series of questions. If they get the question wrong, then the student receives an electric shock, and the shocks go up in voltage. Exponentially, yes. Yeah. And the teacher can hear what's happening to them. And the question Milgram's experiment asked was, how far will people go? When you can hear somebody in the other room who is clearly not just getting like a minor electric shock, but is actually clearly getting hurt by this. Potentially lethally so. How far right. do you keep pushing those buttons? But here is the real twist, and, and this is not giving it away because we learned this very early on. And we're talking it's, about the, ex- uh, the experiment the itself. It's uh, a lie. The, yeah. That's the beautiful thing of it. You see, the teacher is the only subject in the room. The guy as who's posing as the learner is part of the experiment, is in on it. Basically an actor whose job it is to scream and yell at appropriate moments. Sometimes you see them just playing a tape recording uh, to the responses. What Milgram wanted to do was, I believe, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe the t- subject, his, the title of his study was, you know, it was on obedience. He was very interested, and you have to realize that Post World War II, this was actually the a paper question. was called was called "Obedience to Authority: An Experimental View." Yeah. Post World War II, there was a very big question as to why were people willing to do horrific, terrible, inhumane things, and what we found, or what Milgram found, is that they responded to authority once they ceded responsibility. To someone in a position of authority, they were able to, they didn't like it necessarily. They might have even at times protested it, but eventually almost all of them break down and say, okay, I'll go forward. And this is what, interestingly, what Milgram didn't want to find out. Yeah. He's shocked to find out that, oh, I thought they would get up. I thought they would walk out. I thought they would fight and say, no, this is wrong disappointingly most human beings will just go along and they see and he even has his uh, assistant dressed in a lab coat yeah and even the discussion of like what color should the lab coat be this is uh yeah the, it's fascinating this isn't just about uh the experiment in the way that the recent um the stanford prison experiment which was another mm-hmm. you know kind of breakthrough moment in questions of you know, how much people will give up responsibility when they have a degree of power or have somebody on their shoulders saying, you have authority over this other person. Uh, instead, this is really a biopic of, yeah. uh, you know, Stanley Milgram himself. Right, over the and course of about 30, 40 years. Played by Peter Sarsgaard. Yeah. Uh, often breaking the fourth wall. Yes, it's um, a very theatrical film, which I loved about Extremely stagey. Um, you know, one of the first things is that this sequence opens up of the, the characters walking in, um, and, you know, he's, he'll turn to camera and say, this is what we're doing, yeah. and, and break it all down, yeah. and break down the deceit and what yeah. he's doing to these people. But the thing with, with, with what happened with Milgram as, as time went on was that people questioned, well, 
is this ethical? Right. And he his career was almost destroyed because people, A, didn't think the, the process of the experimentation was, was correct uh, and therefore was throwing the results out. And B thought, well, even if, this, as you pointed out, even if this is what we're getting out of this, we shouldn't be learning this. Well, we really shouldn't be learning this about these characters th- th- and about humans this is because it, it tells us something bad that... And he it points wasn't, out... You know, it the wasn't character. the inherent evil of Nazism or that a cloud of, of devilry settled on Germany in, 19, in wow. 1936. Uh, okay. It's that when people said, I was only following orders mm. at the Nuremberg trials, yes, sadly, yes, they it, were only following orders and we're very prone to doing what other people tell us. But but one thing, and, and you know, I, at the risk of going too far away from the film, the film does present this... And it does it in a very theatrical way. It uses scenic backdrops. It uses simple sets. It's a low. It's a fairly modest budget film with some really good character actors who probably came in as day players. And you know, uh, but what makes the film work for me is that sort of ironic distance. Ironic distance, probably the wrong word. But there's a kind of distancing effect that allows us to look at it a bit dispassionately because the film, as you pointed out, often breaks the fourth wall often plays with ideas of cinematic realism. At one point, and I'm glad you brought up the Nazis, because as we find out, Milgram uh, was in himself uh, the child of Jewish immigrants who had come from Europe, uh, and a few of his family members had uh, perished in the camps. And he himself was sort of obsessed with this idea of, like, why? Why did so many people go along with this? And there's a moment where he's walks out of the experiment, is walking down a hallway towards the camera, speaking directly to us, the audience, talking about how amazed he was that, you know, his findings were what they were. And and the director, uh, help me with this, uh, Armand Dial? I, I only know him from his Hamlet movie. Yeah, my, uh, Michael years ago. Amorodea. Yeah. He does something that he'll repeat later, Literally, an elephant walks into the room. Yes, it, it is. It is the elephant. The, the metaphor of the elephant in the room, which I, I thought was, was so wonderfully theatrically heavy-handed. Yes. that he actually gets away with it. I, I which he really shame him for that. I was sitting there once that happened. I thought, I thought, can I forgive this? Is this really bad? And I thought, no. It's so upfront. It's kind of brilliant. Yeah. And what you find out that Milgram is trying to do is as we all are, is trying to make sense of the world and the horrors of it. And he himself then is accused of being a manipulator, of being a torturer, as we see one of his students say, you tortured those people. He said, oh, no, I didn't. You know, they were, they all had the freedom to get up whenever they want. You know, it was always, you know, understood that consent was required. You know, they followed the instructions. They're like, no, but you didn't torture the guy in the room who was supposedly getting the shots, you tortured the man who you were telling had you telling him to continue giving shots. It really turns the tables on him. And I don't think this film indicts him, but it does open that question of like, well, I, I, you know, are you right to do this? The, and, I mean, uh, and this, 
you know, this is it just, ethical? Yeah, well, Sarsgaard undoubtedly carries this and gives oh, yes. Milgram a, a great degree of, of moral and emotional complexity while still being very calm about it. He, yeah. he really does come across as an academic, including yes. uh, in some of the later sequences where he's basically exiled uh, to France because his experiments are uh, so poorly regarded in the States. Um, he does sport the best 1970s academic chin-strap oh, beard yeah. you will ever see. But, but here's again where the director's so ex- theatrical is when we first see him with that chin beard for no real reason we see a guy dressed as Abraham Lincoln walk into the shot sporting the exact Exact same same beard beard. and you know I love the fact that the film is kind of makes you know it makes the best out of its low budget You you have a whole scene that'll be like when he goes to meet his mentor the whole scene is just black and white stills of the interior of a nice house because they probably couldn't afford to build a set for that, but they use that slide. Uh, oh, I, I thought know. that was not that was a, that was a. I, I think it was a an artistic, very purposeful artistic decision because you could not you, you could knock something together with some plywood fast enough. Um, and they you know there are moments where could, but they you could have sa- they they almost could have saved some money on some of the casting. If there's one problem with this, it's that it. When it stays concentrated on Milgram in academia, and particularly where you know talks about him and uh, Winona Ryder as his his wife Alexandra, uh, and Jim Gaffigan who plays yeah. the guy who is always the I, student, I rather Gaffigan suspect he's cool. a composite character, but he's still great. He's in this. great in it. Gaffigan just—it's just his job to be the professional little, sufferer. Yeah, he's a wonderful diffidence about him that works so well. But there's there's a subplot later on that it is. Interesting, but not, I think, fully enough realized uh, when he sells the rights oh, yes, to, to his Playhouse book, 90. To Playhouse 90, uh, who do a quasi adaptation, a quasi fictionalized adaptation uh, with Kellen Lutz as William Shatner, okay. who actually does do a pretty good William yeah. Shatner, and Dennis Haysbert as, as Ozzy Davis. Yeah. And again, uh, that, yeah, it, it's good. But it almost feels like a... You, you a, want it to be longer. I mean, you either want it to be longer or not there. Or not there. It's yeah. really there just for Ossie Davis to go... It's the first black character, really, we see in the movie. And going, oh, yeah, following authority out of fear? Yeah, we know something about that. Yeah. You know, but, the thing but this is, is a... You know, this is a, a, a this was my great, surprise pick out of yeah, this whole Yeah, this is a great batch. little experimental film. And uh, extras again, uh, a making of, uh, yeah. a, a, a feature specifically about the design, which yeah. I think it, you know, is, is something that if you're either a film um, design, a film set designer mm-hmm. or you work on, on stage and you want to... You could adapt most of this I actually, for the stage extremely I, well. I went back and just to check, because my first instinct was... This must be based on a stage adaptation. Nope. This feels like a stage play. And watching the production designer speak about it, she says, you know, like, I wish we had more money, but we found a way to make it work. Yeah. You know, and I think it's a very conscious decision that actually artistically pays off. There's, there's you know? also a really interesting interview uh, with Milgram's son, Joel Milgram. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Uh, give well, you more was his brother or his Oh, son? no, his brother. His, his brother. brother, okay. And it's really I fascinating giving him, giving context on... The man. Yeah, because the thing is, Milgram was, he was kind of pilloried. Uh, and the thing is, if you've ever taken a Psych 101 or a sociological course, you have heard of the Milgram's experiment. It, it's, it is literally the textbook example. It's been discussed for s- decades now. Uh, ethics classes, 
no matter what you do, sooner or later you come to terms with that experiment. And whether he was right, as there's a scene in the movie where he meets a board of a psychologist and he says, you know, all of you said that everybody would walk out, that there wouldn't, you know, like nobody would sit for this. No one would stand for it. They would all leave and refuse to go along with my experiment. Over 65% of them went along. And what's kind of chilling about this, because we're still using Milgram's work, we're still using that data, they're still using experiments designed off of it. Do you know that during World War II, the Nazis took prisoners, and Jews primarily, and since we're talking about exposure earlier, put them in the snow. Yeah. Just waited to see how long it took to die, recorded it. At what point does the brain function cease? At what Very point similar do they start experiments breathing? done by the, uh, the Japanese yeah. in uh, and, Unit 731 in, uh, in China. And I remember our, our professor in college, in our psychology class, said, you know, that data is still used today. Yeah. It's absolutely unethical. It should have never happened. But it did. Yeah. And the data speaks for itself. And, this, it's and now the, the data saves lives. Yeah. And but Milgram's yeah, experiment might have been horrible. Might have been unethical. It might have brought out... Nobody wanted to know that we were so horrible as a species. Well, you know, I, I, I always treat that as a given that we're fairly abysmal. It, it is, but nobody liked it confirmed scientifically. Yeah. It was one thing for poets and philosophers to talk about how horrible we were, you know. When you've got the stats to back up that we yeah. really are a virus with shoes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of easy for, for you know, Hannah Arendt to say, talk about the banality of evil, and yet Milgram can go, actually, I have the stats on this, <laughs> you know. And it's terrifying, but... I don't want to suggest that this is like a really gut-wrenching, terrifying movie. It's not. It's, it is, it's actually very warm. It's funny at times. It does have those chilling moments, and it asks a lot of big questions, and it does it with a, with a modest budget, but a lot of visual flair, a really solid cast. And I think, to me, this was my surprise pick out of this pile, because it could have gone either way. It could have been a hot mess, or it could have been something close to, I don't want to say masterpiece, but... It is definitely a film worth looking at and discussing and thinking extremely about. Extremely stylish, extremely deep, extremely smart. I thought it was going to be a plain sort of, you know, no, just generic is... biopic, and it's really smarter than that. Yeah, uh, speaking of stylish, yeah, oh, see what oh, I did there? Oh, I see off. what you did. But actually, an extreme change of pace. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, you know what? It's it's time for some 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 wuxia. It's time for some some, you know, swords and... Wire work. Uh, and, Lots of wire work. Yeah. And, and we, uh, the past few months, we've had some pretty rough uh, period Chinese pieces. Mm. That, you know, uh, quite a few of whom have actually been spectacularly racist against uh-huh. either the Koreans or the Japanese, yes. which have been like really, really awkward. None of those problems with, I think, the best his, uh, Japanese historical action film I've uh, Chinese historical action film I've seen in quite a while uh, Memories of the Sword yeah I, I I like this film it's gorgeous to look at again we talk about stylish and design my only problem with this movie is that you know I think it tries to aspire to high tragedy it's a great pulp melodrama with you know a lot of cool action sequences and beautiful production values when it tries to strive to be more than that, I think it fails because it tends to deliver the information in such little 
stingy little portions that by the time you get all the pieces to the puzzle, you go, oh, is that all there was? You know, somebody could have come out and told me that, you know, in two minutes. Yeah. But, but I'm but jumping I, ahead of myself. It, that's I, I, not I, 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 that it has pleasure. That's the thing. It. Like, this is kind of a cheesy historical melodrama, but it does it really well. It does. It's, you know, it, it, the, the, it's set actually in medieval Korea uh, during the Goyo dynasty. Um, the, there's a, a, a young girl who's clearly been training to be a swordswoman. Oh. Um, <clears throat> called Hong Yi, who uh, you know manages this wonderful little bit of wire work involving uh, uh, climbing up an extremely tall sunflower. Yeah. Where you watch it and just go, "This is silly," but I'm I'm on board. Yeah, for I'm a moment it looks with... like you walked into a Van Gogh painting. Yeah, it's, it's really gorgeous. It's really beautifully put together, and you go, "It's kind of dopey but fun." She goes into the local town to fight. Uh, in the local exhibition no. matches. As a male. As a male, because she's a female and therefore shouldn't be able no. to. And manages to um, attract the attention of the authorities. Which is when things start getting really complicated because you yeah. start getting a lot of backstory that involves you know three swordsmen in the past uh, who were trying to overthrow the administration, and then two of them actually sell the peasants out and join the the, the, the ruthless dictator. Um, and you're kind of going, well, how does this fit together with her story? Yeah. yeah. And there is a lot of back and forth about, well, who's related to who, who of these, these characters is actually alive now, who's doing what, where have they gone... Uh, hang on, is that person that, or is that person that? Who's uh, and you have this huge court intrigue story going on at the same time as her individual search for what happened to her re- her real parents. Yes, it's big. Yes, it's cheesy. Yes, it is absolutely full fledged, self sacrificing, tragic melodrama with swir- swirling strings and. Great big crazy action sequences and raids on castles and peasants being struck down and characters whose motivations are in question from scene to scene. It's actually really fun. Yeah, yeah. I it's like it's really enjoyable. I enjoyed it. Like I said, it was only when it tried to be more than it was that I think they failed, and I think it could have been solved easily by just not being so stingy with the with the mystery, which turned out to be not all that mysterious, and when we finally do figure out the mystery, it makes one character's particular action seem absolutely mind-bogglingly just wrong. You're like, no, I don't believe a person would do that. However, uh, it does succeed on all the other terms that it tries to succeed at, and for that reason alone, I say it's worth watching. Yeah, it's a I, hell of a lot of fun. I, I want to actually the, the weird so thing long is you don't the, think about it too much. The weird thing is that the the kind of clum, or slightly clumsy um, palace intrigue stuff is saved by the fact that the guy who is undertaking all these conspiracies, uh, uh, the general Diok uh, Gi, uh, played by Lee Byung Hun, is really good. Oh no, he's really like, like you. Know, you really go. This is a guy who is malevolent in all the right way. And I was looking at those those bits of the plot and going, I'm enjoying them in the context here. But a big Korean palace drama about this lowborn man who is clawing his way to the top of the of the uh, the, the, the administrative system 
trying to get as close to being king as he possibly can be. He's Richard the Third, only more sympathetic. Um. Yeah, Richard, yeah, without Richard the without bad, the deformities, Richard got a bad rap. Um, I do, I agree with that. But, but Shakespeare's but, yeah, Richard III. But, but you know, uh, he's it's really some of those scenes. Yeah. Uh, again, that overblown. But there is a really wonderful sequence where he confronts um, one of the people who is in his way on the way to power, and you you suddenly realize how far ahead of everybody else oh, yeah. he is in manipulating this environment. Um, and it's really great. I mean, yeah, yeah. it comes together in kind of Beautifully a, a cheesy, you know... I don't even think the story... Steach, well, the seasons in this movie just change depending on what What's is dramatically required. It's a beautiful uh, summer, like the scene before, and then, like, we're going to have a snow scene here because that would be more beautiful. Oh, and the, the final sequence of, you know, the resolution through, through swordplay in a snowstorm is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is... It's it's not deep. It's not heavy. No. Uh, this is probably of all the titles this week, probably the the weakest. But in in most other weeks, I've got to say this would be one of the top films. Oh, yeah. This is really oh. good. For uh, at a visual level, it's yeah. at a production design level, it is way towards the top. Yeah, you know. But a few quibbles aside, no, I don't mind. I wouldn't have any hesitation saying you know that this is a film worth watching. There's a couple things I wish were different that I thought would have made it better, in my opinion. But hey, uh, you know, your mileage may vary, but I had a good time watching it. I just wanted a little bit more out of the narrative construction, which to me seemed wanting. But um, as a visual feast, you will not, uh, you won't go hungry. Yeah. And now, you know, let's, let's stay in Asia uh, for a second um, with another film that, like The Experiment, is proudly and profoundly stage bound. Oh, yeah. For very different reasons. Uh, and this is not the most recent Takashi Miike, um, because he's, you know, churning probably did something last week. Oh, yeah. No. He's actually, I think, one film away now from having a hundred directorial credits. Yeah, because he's slowing down. Yeah, it is. No, actually, he's speeding back up again. Oh, okay. He's, uh, I read somewhere where he's like, I do two films a year now. I can't no, do ten he's, films he's a year actually anymore. getting, because he, he slowed down in the mid-2000s. Mid yeah. Well, because he got uh, bigger budgets. Yeah, and now he's worked out how to do stuff with a big budget. And do it relatively fast. Uh, this is Over Your Dead Body, uh, which is a kind of meta adaptation of yeah. one of the most famous Japanese ghost stories uh, of a woman who ma- she marries a, a ronin whose, you know, his fortunes are, are definitely <clears throat> non-existent to fading. Um then he becomes the subject of fascination of the daughter of a much more notable noble family. The His wife is poisoned to clear the way, depending on the, the, which version of the story you hear, either he does it himself and knows this is all going on, or the family does it to her. And she dies but becomes this very distorted ghost who wreaks her revenge. Yeah. Well, he's definitely complicit. And we, well, it, he is in, in this version because what's true. happening there in are this... Multiple versions oh, there are multiple versions of... You know, he's not a good guy, but horrible. You know, it depends how horrible he is. Um, it, because it, this is a folktale that has been adapted on multiple... I mean, there's, there's th- I think, 30 film and television versions of this. Yeah. There are multiple uh, kabuki versions. And, and I have a feeling for a Japanese audience who are... I mean, basically, imagine if you were watching a production of Hamlet that was about a group of actors playing the 
Hamlet and how that impacts their day-to-day yeah. lives, you might be able to make certain connections between the material and the real-life sequences. Because, what, what's because you know the story. Here, we don't know this story, at least in the West as well. I, uh, I, so I, I felt I like I missed some things because if I'd known the story, I might have made some connections. Fans of Mike yeah. will probably know, are probably more au fait with the cultural background of, of this yeah. story. Um, the basic idea here is that the play is in... There, there is a major stage um, production of this being undertaken. Uh, and they're still in rehearsals on an incredibly complicated oh, yes. rotating stage. Set. That Clearly, this is something that's going to be in one of the major theatres uh, in, mm. J- in Japan. And the lead actress who plays the betrayed wife um, has got her boyfriend cast in the part of Iamon the uh, the Ronin, yeah. and he is sleeping with the minor a- with the, with the lesser actress yeah. who is playing the part of the second bride. Right. So you're setting up all these levels of interplay between the characters yeah. and the characters they are playing. And this being Mike, he gets away with it. You know, no. I, he is. Uh, I, I still think one of the finer. He went through a little bit of a lull. Um, this is him doing one of his more cerebral pieces in tone. A lot of people have made comparisons to audition for this sense of creeping dread. I have to say, I first saw this at Fantastic Fest um, two years ago, and it didn't work for me on the big screen. I don't know Hmm. why, but it didn't quite succeed in the same way that something like Vanya on 42nd Street doesn't Uh work uh, on, on the big screen. But in my own home, which comes closer to the sense of intimacy that you yeah. get on, on, a, on a rehearsal stage, I you know this is really extremely successful. A real sense of creeping dread and menace to the ghost story within the ghost story, and then you you have to question yourself because one of the things Mike plays with is the idea that this is a story that everybody knows that is based on a folktale. In fact. Japanese uh, actors, when they're doing the version of the play that they're performing here, will go to the supposed location of the grave I read that. of the ghost. Yeah, it's like a theater tradition. Say, Please, you know, this, you know, it's like not saying Macbeth on stage. Right. They will go and say, look, we're, we're doing this with the best of intentions and with all due reverence. Yeah. Please don't haunt our production. <laughs> As someone who wasn't familiar with the story, and, and really I've only seen a handful of Mikkei things, uh, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Well, let's face th- facts. Most people statistically have only seen a small, small percentage oh, yeah, sure, of its extraordinary enough. output. But I have, uh, you know, in this case, I, I, you know, having a kind of a theater background, I'm always a sucker for a backstage story. So I kind of see where he's going with this. I'm like, oh, okay. I see how the lives of the actors uh, are paralleling with the, the roles that they're portraying. Now, one thing that I found curious, not knowing a whole lot about Kabuki, because this is it's a Kabuki play. Yeah. And uh, what I found interesting was my the few experiences of Kabuki I've had just through documentaries and things is that it's a very highly ritualized, stylized performance. It's very broad. There's a language of gestures uh, and stylistic conventions that are at work. And what he chooses to do and maybe this is common today, is that he chooses the characters within the play to perform it 
in a kind of naturalistic it's style. A much more, well, I mean, and that, that was, really sells the whole point yeah. of the blurring of illusion and reality. Because if they were breaking out into the equivalent of like these and thous and speaking in a very declamatory way, you would know, oh, well, this is the stage Well, this is one of the version. things that actually makes it really interesting is that it is so heavily contemporized. Whereas, the, you know, Formal kabuki theatre is still an extremely strong tradition yeah. um, in Japan, and there's a lot of uh, groups who would probably look at the production as it's being mounted here and go, "Well, you shouldn't be doing that." So yeah. it's, it, you know, I think this is this is a film that actually stands up to multiple rewatchings to try and unfurl. Yeah. This isn't like you know his Thirteen Assassins, which you go in and you watch and you say, "Yep, yeah, that's great fun," yeah. or Audition, which is great because it's just effective on multiple multiple watchings. Um, this really, I think it's, I think I went in expecting much more of a conventional ghost story and you come out the other end going, no, I need to go back and rewatch that and catch some details that yeah. aren't necessarily apparent. There's a couple of tiny flashed images that only make sense yeah. in hindsight and you I may mean, not even pick on a pick up on initially. I, I think there's also a few things that maybe just come up and don't really lead anywhere. They're just there because they're creepy or weird. So I do sometimes feel like he plays his hand a little too much. Like, okay, now you're just trying to freak me out with some weird image. But when this movie works, when it's running on all cylinders, it's really very effective. It's kind of, I, I don't, not having seen a whole broad spectrum of Mikkei stuff, it's hard for me to say, but this is this has a very glacial pace, and that may sound like a criticism, but I think it's absolutely essential for setting up the tension uh, that he's trying to go for, because the whole, a huge chunk of the movie goes by, and it's seemingly nothing much is happening. In fact, huge scenes go by, and it's just the play. Yeah. Which I, I almost wanted that as a special feature. I was like... I just want to see the whole play now. I want to see that. I want to see Mikkei's stage production of, of, of this. I, I want to see that now. Uh, so he'll go on for long moments where you're just kind of wrapped up in the story of the play, and then suddenly, you know, after five ten minutes of this, he'll switch the camera angle, and you see the director and the tech crew and everybody out in the audience. And that's an interesting thing to me too, because it's not an audience. Maybe he didn't want to pay for all the extras. I don't know. Well, but no, because there's so many people the in the crew. There's so many people in the crew that it effectively becomes. Yeah, you, you, this is incredibly. Technically- that's where it becomes, I think, an analogy for filmmaking itself, or just for storytelling or theater making. Yeah. However, you want to look at it, it would be different if it were the audience. You know, I think it is someone who crafts stories, commenting on the crafting of stories. I think it would be a very different dynamic if it was a performance in front of a live audience. Yeah. It is very pointedly clear that we are looking at a crew, the creative team, sitting there behind this, impassively behind this bank of tables, looking at their laptops, reading their prompt books. And, you know, it, you can't not see this as an analogy to the filmmaking process. Where Mikkei's going with it, I wouldn't hazard a guess, but it is still a very effective thrilling piece of cinema well uh, total change of pace yeah now. yeah although there is, you know again kind of uh, sexual tension uh mm-hmm. is is the the key component uh let, let's go to one of the uh lewdest but most charming uh rom-coms of the past couple of years there's been a lot of uh, rom-coms that have tried to uh, up the the raunchy train wreck does it and does it extremely well i mean the, you know I didn't need to see John Cena's ass, but it works extremely well in that context. Um, but sleeping with uh, with other people, which has, I will admit, one of the best timed ass shots 
of any film of the past ten years. <laughs> Mercifully, for, for me, it wasn't Jason Sudeikis, although I'm sure there are a lot of Jason Sudeikis fans out I'm there. I'm sure who some like, women were disappointed. Yeah, um, well, I don't think anybody's disappointed by Fair the, play, the sight know. of Alison Brie's ass in this film. No, no. Um, no. To, be, to be blunt about you. We could just talk about that for the next 30 minutes. I, too, I, I, or, or we could just silently sit in contemplation of it. Uh, um, yes. this, this is a, a very <laughs> simple little film it, it, you know it's it's a rom-com you know how it's going to end up if you oh, can't yeah. work out how this is going to end up five minutes in you've clearly never seen any tom hanks meg ryan film from the from the mid 80s you've probably never seen a movie <laughs> you're, you're unaware of this concept of cinema you've been living um, out in the desert somewhere uh, uh yeah but this this movie this starts in in 2002 uh, with, uh, this is the only really unconvincing bit of the film. Uh, right, Alison Brie and Jason Sudeikis playing um, college uh, versions of themselves. Yeah, not I mean, and Alison, not like seniors. They're like obviously sophomores or freshmen yeah. because, as we find out, they're both still virgins at this time. Yeah, they they get they they have their their first sexual encounter together, and then it jumps forward year, several years to. Jason Sudeikis is a guy who finds it virtually impossible to stay monogamous. Right. Um, and manages to kind of talk his way out of a lot of situations where he sh- probably should be blamed. While uh, Alison Bree's character is now uh, fixated on her former TA, who's now a, a doctor. Yeah. Um, She's sleeping with him, trying to get over the fact that he's clearly never going to leave his wife. Uh, they run in, the, these two run into each other again after years of, of being apart and go, okay, our only solution here after running into Sudeikis' character is actually at a... Um, they're both sex, at a sex Yeah, they're both, they're both at a sex addict uh, meeting. And they say, well, okay, we have to help each other not sleep with people. And we definitely shouldn't sleep with each other because that would be the worst possible thing because we need to be friends. Um, It's the age-old question is, can a man and a woman be friends without sex getting involved? And if you believe Hollywood movies, the answer is no. Yeah. Uh, yeah, It basically takes the the underlying idea of uh, when Harry met Sally um, and goes, you know what? Boobs. You know what Harry and Sally didn't have? It didn't have a scene of some, of a man demonstrating how to finger a woman on a jug. That's what it didn't have. <laughs> which is, you know, because Nora Ephron, you know, she dropped the ball on that. Yeah, I mean, like, imagine really, if it, kids growing up then had seen that. That would have saved my ass so often. And back it is, then, it, it is you know? one of the hottest sequences Absolutely. in cinema in years. This is what this film and totally on point. To, it, yeah. It's really mean, there ain't do. nothing in that scene that's wrong. No, I'm telling no, you. Like, that is that is a how-to guy. It's like I wish someone had shown me that earlier. I had to learn it the hard way. But what's great about this is it manages to be sexy, yeah, and funny, but also manages to be sexy and very sweet. It maintains which, the sweetness, but which it, is the tough bit that you, and particularly because it, you know how this is going to end yeah. up. But there's a there's that. It's great, not mean spirit. No, there's that great point where you go, okay, they both realize yeah. the the real nature of their relationship, and wow, they may not end up together. 
And you, oh, you know they're going to. You know they're going to. But they pull off the great trick in the same way that when, you know, yeah, look at when Harry went, met Sally, when they first sleep together and you go, oh no, things are going to go wrong. Can they on it? You know, oh, or, or, you know, in Sleepless yeah. in Seattle. I it's totally like, thought oh, Elaine gonna was going to marry that other guy yeah, in the you, graduate. He, you Come know, on, you, you know. Oh, that you that's know. But it pulls the trick of making you want yeah. to believe there's a degree of tension. Yes, it does do that well. And, and I, to me, the real. It sets a few. It gets a few things right early on, that really pay off later in the film, and, and things that I found unexpected. The most, the most unexpected of which is there's a scene early, early on, uh, when we see uh, the Alison Brie character uh, with her, with the man that she has pined for all her life, this one sort of unrequited love that she has been having a serial affair with. But this man will not leave. His wife will not commit to her. So he's a gynecologist, of all things. Yes. <laughs> and he goes, she has to set an appointment to go and have an affair with him. And so there's a brief sex scene in there. And it is brief. I mean, it's brief. I mean, it's like over in a few seconds. And for a moment, there is nothing funny in this scene. It is sad. It's pathetic. I thought it was being played for laughs, like, oh, okay, the guy came in two seconds. This is going to be a joke. No, you realize this, as unsatisfying as it appears, this is the thing she wants. This guy who barely acknowledges her and is done in seconds, this is for her what she has been trying to chase after. And you realize how damaged she is. And it's a very sad kind of, because the way they frame it, you know, you kind of see her face, and she doesn't look satisfied, but it's the closest thing to satisfaction she seems to get. So by the time you get, you know, her her new best friend, which is the guy she lost her virginity to all those years ago, going, you don't know how to masturbate? Okay, I have to show you how to do this. You realize this oh, the woman look on has... Alison yeah. Bree's face during that is just like... I, I stand the pants right now. Mousetrap. Yeah, mousetrap. Yeah, and trust me. If, when you see you this, you'll be saying, make, if you're seeing with, with friends, you will you will be saying mousetrap to each other. You know, this it's a good character moment that pays off. Yeah, the, the, I, this I, is. I believed her after that point. You know, in a week where there's actually a lot of highly aspirational, uh, extremely cerebral, extremely successful, um, high budget and high concept films. Yeah. You know what? Weirdly, I think this is actually the movie I will probably go back to most often. It, it, it's it's the that, one that you could watch. Sicario, again. I think, you know, in terms of a, a, better a successful film. piece of yeah. filmmaking, I think that is my pick of the week. But as a film that I really enjoyed, I think this is my pick of the week. Yeah. So you know, I'm, I'm very split because it's like it, the, you know my my snake brain and and my uh, more advanced cortices are, it, are very definitely a conflict. It gets a lot <laughs> of things right that a movie like this doesn't have to get right to yeah. be successful. Yet it makes the effort. And, and there's two things that really impacted me upon watching it is one, and it's right towards the very, very, very end of the film. Like, you know, wait through the credits. But oh. we do see that there is, you know, uh, the, the Jason Sudeikis character has a best friend who's married and has kids, you know, and he's the guy who's like, dude, you know, you, you need to get married. Oh, you know, it's kind of awkward. Such but a, the, arguably, there's the another most, married couple. Yeah. And that is arguably the most, uh, apart from the uh, the scene with the jar, that is the most overt nod uh, to when Harry met Sally. Because they have an argument that I was, uh, they have a discussion and I'm like, 
This reminds me of the um, the discussion about the wagon wheel coffee table in When Harry Met Sally, which is still one of my favourite pieces oh. of, of, of romantic comedy cinema. Um, you know, you know, I think, I, you know, just a uh, an, you know a time when we've not really had, I think, a a rom com that is prepared to stick the landing in quite this way without mm. going a little bit over. Which was my problem with Trainwreck. I think the ending of Trainwreck was. It, it gets too big and weird, and it was like, yeah, I like everything else, and then suddenly you have this weird well, sequence that feels like it's dropped in from from a, a, a song and dance movie. Uh, um, but I think this this much this this is much sweeter and more endearing. What I loved about that is so often in movies like this, you know, you, the best friend is kind of jealous of the other guy, and he's like, oh yeah, my wife, she's horrible, and, you know. You ex- and they they complain. They're like, "Yeah, we're married. We're tired. We never have time to do anything. We got kids, and I've got vomit on me." But you realize it ends with a couple that's already married, yeah, and that they genuinely love each other and they deal with one another's quirks, which is kind of foreshadowing for where probably the the Sudeikis and and Bree character are going. But it's nice because those characters, like the wife, isn't like some killjoy shrew. The guy's not all neurotic and insecure. It's like they genuinely like each other. And I thought, well, that's cute. Because so often in these kind of comedies, you know, you have the uh, your protagonists are the paragons of love. And everybody else looks horrible by comparison for comedic purposes. But, no, these guys are wonderful. Uh, I should also point out, at the risk of going off topic, and I know I do that, there is a moment in this Follow play, your instincts. I wanted to talk about this. There is a moment, uh, at a great scene where, uh, the protagonists show up at their friend's birthday, uh, the birthday party of a child. They go to a kid's birthday party, stoned out of their minds. And Alison Brie, who in the, in the film is a teacher, she gets all the kids in a circle and teaches them how to dance. And she does this while she's totally high on Mandy's wearing nothing but jean shorts and a bikini top, and she teaches them a rather lewd dance routine. It's like Christmas. Yeah, but to uh, David Bowie's Modern Love. Yes. Appropriate title uh, for that particular sequence. And mind you, I watched this movie about a week ago. So when that came on, I thought the same thing I always think of when I hear a David Bowie song in a movie. It's like, oh, I love this song. Yeah. Well, I wonder what David Bowie's doing now. I wonder if he's got anything else in the pipeline. <laughs> Ill-timed thought. Yeah, exactly. And I realized if I had seen that movie a week later, I'd have a very different reaction. I probably wouldn't enjoy that scene as much. But at the time, not knowing no, any better, no, no, I love no, it. No, no, I will disagree with you, Allison. Uh, you, know, you could, you could have set that to "Tomorrow Belongs to Me," and Allison Brie gyrating. I think is still going to be stellar. You know what? I'm never going to have sex with Allison Brie. But I have an Dream I have a, low. I have, you, I have a shelf full of David know. Bowie albums that have never disappointed me. <laughs> and the thing is, I remember, especially like during the nineties, he started doing this, uh, where he would sort of promote a single by making it part of a soundtrack. Sensible you know, boy. Yeah, which is why, like you know, early tracks that showed up on Outside were like appeared in like Buddha of Suburbia or in David Fincher's uh, Seven and. You know, so you'd hear this new Bowie song, and you go, oh, I wonder what the new album's going to be like, and then you go pick it up. And I realize I'm not going to have that experience anymore. Yeah. And, and that made me think about not only how many songs he's contributed to soundtracks, but also his performances in film. Obviously, David Bowie's impact is greatest in the field of popular music, 
But you realize you've also lost a great contributor to cinema as well. As an actor, as a soundtrack writer, A man who also went through the best thing about Zoolander. Which I've never seen, but I hear he's good in it. It's it's not great. I hear he is good in it. He's phenomenal in it. And a man who, who, you know, in uh, The Venture Brothers... I love the convincingly have it's not him unfortunately but yeah it's not but it's like you convincingly have David Bowie Bowie, an animated version of David Bowie as uh, you know the a shape changing global dictator and you're like no yeah I can believe that with his henchmen being Iggy Pop and Klaus Nomi yeah I mean that's brilliant he's such a great icon and whenever you cast David Bowie in a movie he it's inevitably stunt casting because you can't look at any character he plays without looking at it through the lens of David Bowie, it obviously lends to the performance. But, you know... But then uh, I, I think good directors cast him in the right part. For example... Absolutely. Um, I love him with Prestige. Casting I, him as Tesla? Brilliant idea. Brilliant. Uh, also in... Um, in The Hunger. Brilliant. Baal. He did a, a, the, the, a yeah. an adaptation of uh, of Baal, but I'll play for the BBC in the early 80s. Uh, if you can hunt it down, it's extremely I hard to find. But there is a. I see the soundtrack. He yeah, he did the he did the soundtrack. He did a a a, 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 a bunch of Kurt Mile yeah. tracks that he did very light on it. Uh, one of the uh, last things he did was do a stage play based around you know that was sort of a quasi sequel to the man Nick Rogue's uh, the man who fell to earth. Yeah, this is a guy who had a huge influence in music, obviously, and a man who could but, who could turn his hand to pretty much any. Yeah. But any it, genre and do it on a do it on a dime. And this is a guy who could go yeah. from doing something like Hearts Filthy Lesson to doing a drum and bass album. Yeah, like uh, drum and overnight. bass. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay. And, and still, then get bored with it and move on, you know. Well, he didn't get bored with it. I think he he's could, like, I've gotten everything I need out of yeah. this. Uh you know, and and Unlike say the Rolling with, Stones. I mean, what are the Rolling Stones? I love the Stones, but come on, have they done a great been. album since nineteen eighty? David had a good album since Tattoo You. I wouldn't even push it that far. You know that, and that was the end of the that was the end of the era. But David Bowie in the '90s, when I was listening to Outside and and discovering his back catalog, I realized that this was the first that I knew of, the first uh, artist of that generation who was not making music anymore for his original fans. He made a record that. You know, my I, parents would hate. I don't think. I think that was the thing. I don't think he he didn't need to go after cared. that. Exactly. I mean, you have to remember, like, you know, his early material. This is a guy who was not supposed to be successful. This Absolutely. was a this was a uh, a former mime artist uh, yeah. doing high concept pop. Yeah. Everything about this That's was supposed to antagonize absolutely everybody. No. And I think he was just he had a sensibility that while he could be at the extremes of artistic experimentation, uh, he could make it accessible. In the way that Lou Reed, oh. when Lou Reed goes off, goes off and says, you know what, I'm going to do uh, you know, uh, Transformer, that's going to be extremely yeah. accessible. Uh-huh. But when he goes off and does Metal Machine music, which I love, I'm part of that cadre that actually likes it. There are many of us. I respect Metal Machine oh, well, music actually, more I than like I like it, to watch you know, it. You know, I, I or listen to it, I should say. I could, put that straight on after some Godflesh and be quite happy. Um, but I understand that, like, in the same way that Godflesh isn't for everybody, you know, I'm still fine. convinced that was just his way of getting out of a contract. But, uh, but, but still, yeah, there was a, he made but a I, point I'm okay with an artist hate-fucking the audience. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Which, which, you know, I think he could do extraordinarily well. Bowie but could have Bowie, gone on the greatest think, hits route decades ago and yeah, just go and out he, and do the same songs over and over. I and think he, he just, it. in his sensibilities, 
were a gateway into much more extreme art. Yeah. Um, that, you know, he's playing in the same region as some, in, on occasion somebody like Diamond Gallus, but doing it in, oh, yeah. in a way that a top 40 audience is going to be okay with. He, he was always able to make the avant-garde accessible. Uh, I went to the Alamo Draft House the other night when they had a Bowie sing-along uh, commemorating his death, and I was watching the video. Mind you, this must have been late 70s, early 80s, uh, doing a video for... Uh, uh, boys keep swinging, you know, where he plays like three drag queens, you yeah. know. And I'm thinking, you just did a song about homosexuality and transsexuals, and somehow did it like on top of the pops or made it. Yeah, a, no, video. It, you and you put it in the mainstream stuff now that we're just could, now getting comfortable with. But we got there first. You could actually get away with a surprising amount. You could uh, on the BBC but in that era. Is, but it, guys like Bowie strange. made it. Oh, there they he ma- helped make it, and it's palatable. fascinating that he could do something, uh, you know, something like, um, you know, Ziggy Stardust, mm. that he could do that, and then hand it off to someone like Mott the Hoople, who can do a just straight out rock version of sure. it. That's much harder and less, not less edge to it, but still works extraordinarily well. Yeah. And but, then I it was on the list of very few people that can actually get away with covering Bowie, and it doesn't sound like you know, oh, you're covering Bowie. Yeah, yes, but what's can... Mott the Hoople's best song? Yeah, a song that David Bowie wrote. What's Mott the Hoople doing now? Yeah, the, although there are, there are, I there love Iggy Pop, but let's face it, those first two records he cut with Bowie. Those are his best records, the, not counting the stuff with the Stooges. I, I, I always love upsetting... There, there are a few diehard Patti Smith fans that I always love upsetting by reminding them that uh, you know her her most uh, successful and recognizable track was actually written by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, um, anyway, moving on. I will let, we should move on. We I just want to point out them. that music not only lost an icon, so did cinema. Yeah. That's all I wanted to say. And uh, yo. Talking of musical cinema, ah, mm, you're see. good at this. Oh, this is, segways aren't just a ridiculous vehicle with two wheels. Uh, <laughs> the a complete change of pace. Um, although you know, a comedy with some sex elements, uh, most particularly uh, zombies being beaten <coughs> to death with double-ended dildos. Yeah, death gasm. Everything ends in death gasm oh, eventually. You know what? You know. We talked about Mikey and a man who has done. A, he was never part of the of the Japanese splatter movement in the same way that a lot of his contemporary horror directors were. Uh, this is undoubtedly a pure homage to the classic era of New Zealand splatter. Yes. I was like, this is if yeah. Peter Jackson were a metalhead this is what Braindead would have been like yeah oh very yeah. very yeah back when even back down when to the weed fun. weed whacker lawn maintenance implements of death uh, also you know and uh, Ant Timpson the producer of this Ant uh, put your fingers in your ears for a second because you'll probably be really annoyed at me next time you see me um, there was a great uh, sitcom uh, on uh, Fearnet called Todd and the Book of Pure Evil, uh, which was set in... It was basically... I like it just for naming him Todd. Yeah, it was... Which, of course, means death. Buffy-esque, but stupider. Um, All right. And the idea was that there was the Book of Pure Evil was floating around in this high school, and this dumb stoner metalhead called Todd uh, and his friends, very Scooby gang-esque, keep trying to keep it out of the hands of the bunch of aging local Satanists um, 
it had a it had a small dedicated following. If you let's just say if you like Todd in the Book of Pure Evil, you'll like Deathgasm. I'm and not going to say versa, I'm not going to say that like it, it that this kind of takes yeah this is anyway rip off or not. It's very much the same sensibilities. Um, I mean, this it is about takes a, the yeah. I mean, it takes the premise of like. Look, every heavy metal outfit seems to trade in this idea that Satanism is cool. So, what if it actually were true? Yeah, the you know basically the you have a guy called Brody who's this high school kid played by uh, Milo Cawthorn who's sent to live with his his, uh, his relatives after his uh, mother has one meth incident too many uh, with his God fearing at relatives and their bully boy, their bully son and he's the the he thinks he's the sole metal head yeah. in this this tiny community in the middle of rural New Zealand his best friends are two D&D playing nerds yes um but then he he suddenly realizes that uh, oh there's one other cool kid metalhead I, and they, that's a wonderful bonding sequence which I've oh, actually I do love been that. through yes. where they're in the local record store the one local record store and they're war- they're looking through albums and like uh-huh. very you know ostentatiously picking out like yeah. the cool albums trying to see are you cool yeah, are, do you, oh, are yeah. you cool yeah, that's a good album. do you like yeah. Azeroth ah. uh, that's my bad it's a good choice which then results in a, in a hilarious um, look what the cat dragged in uh, moment which is a perfectly timed gag they discover that uh, the, there is a mythical missing rock star may be hiding out in this town uh, with his his legendary album, which has disappeared somewhere. They, which, they break into his house, yeah, which may include some pages of ancient manuscript that, that and sheet may music. Bring about the apocalypse, which, by the way, is one of the best you know inserts I've ever seen in an album. I mean, hey, that's pretty collectible if you can have ancient manuscript pages. Yeah, the original. You know, uh, hey, well, first pressing. Well, they, <laughs> you, you liked them before they were cool. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you've got the, you know, obviously they managed to get hold of these pages, not realizing what they are, play, you know, set them to music, and start accidentally bringing about the apocalypse. Yeah, kind of unleash demons. Yeah, which supposedly do. affects everyone in listening radius, which is one of my few complaints about the movies where I'm like, wait a minute. You established that anyone who was hearing it could become a demon, but you got a lot of people who weren't anywhere nearby. But still, this is not a movie to apply conventional logic to. This is a really fun, and, and dare I say, stupid movie. And oh. I say stupid in the best way. Seriously, this, this is the Ramones level of stupid. You know it's dumb, but you love it. Well, and the characters are all fairly idiotic. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's also quite prepared to kill characters off. Apart I was surprised like a how couple many who you didn't know, make like, it through uh, yeah, this. Oh, well, I mean, I think that's part of the the classic New Zealand splatter tradition. Is like, yeah. you know what? You'll have a couple of people get out of the way, so it's not completely depressing at the end. Um, but if you, the sign of a of a good character and a character you really like is that their exit is totally over the top. Right, and you get a bunch, you get several characters whose exit is totally over the All top, right. including one moment where. let's just say that uh, Brody does something where if this was a more sensible and grounded film you'd go 
yeah, what? No, I suddenly dislike this character. But because this is so ridiculous and over the top and loaded with a lot of really, really good New Zealand extreme death and black metal made by people who clearly know and understand New Zealand extreme death and black metal. So the soundtrack's actually really fucking good if you like that scene. Um... You I know, know what you, seniors you get, you say talking about. You can, and, it, and I won't spoil it. It was yeah, great. But yeah, it's like, get, no, he looked like a demon. He had to have been a demon. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, you, totally you, demon. You get away, he gets away with it because it does embrace its own in, inner silliness, the inner cartoonishness yeah. of metal. It's actually going to be a really interesting uh, counterpoint when later this year, Devil's Candy, uh, mm-hmm. which is a much more straightforward take on metal and demonism and horror comes out which is great I wonder if this is what Chris was talking to me about but you know afterwards I'll talk about that because I have a question I want to ask you Chris afterwards but yeah Chris is sat here just playing with his phone being being silent which is a rather wonderful change no this is this is great there was was a metal horror movie you were telling me about a while back yeah it's great maybe that's Uh, it yeah very, very you know. different in tone because that really is a horror movie that is about metal. This is a horror right. comedy right. with a lot of metal in it. it, it it's, it's silly. It's, it, but it, it's good fun. I will say I had a lot of time for this. Uh, this is, I think, the third time I've seen it. Uh, oh. This is a pizza, This is what I, the epitome of what I call a pizza and beer movie. Uh, there is nothing bright about this film but no it, redeeming it values whatsoever it embraces its dumbness and carries yeah. them off with 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 great applause and, and, and yeah pulls it off with a certain amount of sweetness with a very engaging character and yeah but shit tons of blood yeah. so if you like that kind of thing you're gonna like this movie you know what? That brings us to the end. Oh my god! This was a, this was a short week of titles. It's so easy when you all, like the movies. They're you're all watching. Jim Dandies. Yeah, they're all. A, you know, they, I think they were deliberately released. There's knowing not that a shitty like, movie. No, there's much. I was I, mean, I was. I was. I was prepared to say that Deathgasm was actually the weakest movie in the bunch. Now I'm no longer sure of that. Yeah. But still, it doesn't matter because. They're Any movie you pick out this of is, this pile, this is, this is, is be more. Fun. What are you in the mood for? Yeah, rather than are these worth watching? So, what, what's yeah. your pick of the week? Um, I, I, you know, I think for rewatchability, you got to pick one. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I've got to go with Sleeping with Other People. Fair enough. You know, my pick is actually The Experimenter. Yeah, and uh, uh, that's a, that's another strong. Only contender. because you know, I think it's it's the one movie in there that's genuinely genuinely good interesting and talks about something important that people might you know not notice ew you know hoity toit no no I'm just swayed by Alison Bree's bum yeah, well, we can. We'll, Aren't we all? Aren't we'll we all? always have that. We can always watch <laughs> we'll it again. We'll always have Paris. So, yes. well, you know what? The uh, we, now we've got to deal with, as always, for the the determined listener who made it all the way to the end, the giveaway. Oh, wow, yes. But you know what? I don't think the giveaway is one I've seen. Oh no, it's not. Uh, it's one I've seen. Um, uh, it's Eli Roth's Green Inferno, which is his extremely loving uh, tribute to the classical, the classic Italian cannibal movies. Some people really hated this. I loved it. I thought it was great fun. It's silly as all hell in a deathgasm way. It is unapologetic in how far it's going to go uh, which I think he's actually doing that with with more balance and poise than he has in recent years let's ignore knock knock which wasn't particularly good yeah felt like that was that was that knocked out in an afternoon see what I did there knock, uh-huh. knocked out 
you know, you, <laughs> Chris is now just not. Yeah, just, just firing all cylinders today. In, Richard, yeah, that I did, was not Jim Dandy. Ah, yes, it was. Um, but if you, you know, if you like Eli Roth, if you if this was a long delayed little title, now you can have it, have it in your your greasy little hands. Uh, oh, delightful and delighted listeners! Uh, so here's how you win it. Um, follow us on Twitter at one of us net, and with the hashtag green giveaway so we don't get the censors in um hmm this is uh take a selfie of yourself on the top of Everest and we'll send you this yeah like, I think you would deserve that but I'll send you every DVD you spend, I have in my house if you spend $65,000 to get up Everest and take a selfie of yourself like, you, you don't need it. free shit yeah. come on man yeah, like, you, that's right. you should have bought some DVDs instead uh, and not got pneumonia um this is really clearly a remake uh, of uh, Cannibal Holocaust to a certain degree um, so if you could have Eli Roth remake any film what would it be and we need it to be in the format of Eli Roth's blah 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 whatever it is so Eli Roth's Dumbo we'll throw that one out there so follow us at one of us uh, net on Twitter Use the hashtag Green Giveaway and set, you know, and send us your idea for a film you would really like to see Eli Roth cover just for the car crash joy of it. Okay, we're done. And we're done. we are out of here. <coughs> we are. Thank you again, Marco, for, for wading through... Actually, it wasn't really a wading. No. It, was, it was a delightful dip this week. I, I, I did not feel punished at all. Yep. So this was great. So to uh, wrap it up, as we always do, um, yeah, just say thank you. Don't forget uh, when you look at the bottom of the screen, you can see all the reviews that we've we've done here. Right down the bottom, click on the link that will take you to the Amazon link. You can buy them directly, from, buy the videos and uh, DVDs directly from Amazon. Uh, we get a share of that back. Some- yeah, buy some Bowie albums. Yeah, uh, anything you buy on that trip to Amazon, we get a portion of the, of the revenue. We really appreciate it. It helps keep it in business. Uh, also, feel free to become a subscriber. Uh, gets you access to lots of exclusive content, including the weekly uh, Breakfast Pub. Uh, lots and lots of, of uh, 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 DVD commentaries, which are in the, in the offing. In fact, more are being recorded tomorrow, including a really fascinating superhero one that you'll really not want to miss with an extremely special guest. Um, and that's it. And uh, yeah, to, to wrap it up as we always do, uh, no releases too big, no releases too small. From criteria to catastrophe, view them all. 